välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Athena Farrochsad och jag är programansvarig för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern tillsammans med Ida Linde. I kväll ska ni få höra den ryska författaren Sergej Lebedev i samtal med Stefan Ingvarsson. Varmt välkomna! Jag hade tid på mig och gick därför till Stadsmuseet och läste på om Tysluska. Han hade inlett sin karriär i NKVD och 1944 hade han deltagit i deportationen av tjetjener och ingusier tillsammans med sin första tjänstehund. När han dog 20 år senare låg allt det där i det förgångna. Alla de deporterade kvinnornas tårar, männens förbannelser, barnens gråt. Tysluska tror det har varit en mycket uppskattad polis då han dog. Det var inte lätt att vinna en plats i folkminnet på det viset. Och den delen av det förflutna hade inte heller försvunnit med Sovjetstaten. På hösten det året skröt försvarsministern inför tv-kamerorna med att den ryska armén kunde inta Grosny med ett enda regemente med fallskärmsjägare. Förfärad kände jag att det fanns tusentals osaliga andar som hörde hans ord. Däribland de döda kaukasierna i det vindpinade Betbagdala. Och de fröjdade sig nu, för deras tid var inne. På tv var det ofta tal om trupperna som var på väg till Tjetjenien. Det hela beskrevs som en ren styrkeuppvisning. Men ovanför kolonnerna med bilar och pansarfordon, ovanför flygplanen, trupptransporterna och de tusentals enskilda soldaterna gick det att ana ett förtvivlans gråljus. Den tredje dagen i januari 1995 stod det klart vad som hade hänt i Grosnys. Hur stormningsförsöket hade slutat, hur många soldater som hade stupat. Och jag förstod att det inte var ett nytt år som just börjat för oss, utan en ny era. Vi befann oss redan i framtiden och den skulle inte bli vad vi föreställt oss. Welcome back to Stockholm, Sergej. Ah, thank you. The piece that Ida was reading ends with the realization of the narrator that with the destruction of Grozny, a new era has begun. That the destruction of Grozny was a an opening, a vision of a future that would come. We are now in this future today. Um, when you wrote these words, I mean, I need to ask you, when you were writing these words, partly in Visby, on the Writers and Translators Center, where this novel was partly written, and where we got to know each other 10 years ago, Did you have this vision of an imminent future that started in Grozny? I wrote these exact words in Visby, I think in the first days of December 2013, when in Kiev, Maidan was already arranging itself. And in these days, being like in two times in the same moment, being with my thoughts in the middle of the 90s, in that time of the first Chechen war and being in present moment, I felt very, very eerie thing. Probably I told you that uh, Maidan was covered by darkness and the lights of 
of the tires being burned were shining in this darkness. But I felt that somewhere from the side, from the eastern side, I would say, from the direction of Moscow, some figure hiding in the darkness is looking on these fires of revolt, of, on these fires of defiance. And this look is very dangerous. And the very constellation uh, is dangerous. Something will happen soon. The history is about to make another very tragic turn. This was my feeling. Because the same moment which I described, 1994, I was 13 years old. I was quite a kid, maybe not even a teenager. This war was supposed to be distant from me, but the very pictures shown by the television were very close because before, in the autumn of 1993, mm. the same tanks, I mean, the, the tanks are always the same. You cannot uh, recognize them, they're faceless, they have only numbers, but the numbers are interchangeable as well. The same tanks were shooting in Moscow. Mm. Quite close. It was October 1993 when Yeltsin used the tanks to uh, crash the parliament. And I remember this, you know, White House of the parliament with the dark dots of burns. I remember the sound of shelling in the city, which Moscow, I think, never experienced since the 1905 or 1917. And then all of a sudden you felt that the same tanks you used to see only on the military parades as the like domesticated animals. They gone wild and they're somewhere on the move. And then they appeared in Chechnya. And I mean, 13 years old, but you felt this as a sort of one logic, mm. one process. One, once they started to fire, because in 1991, the tanks were not firing. They were staying, they were moving, but they were silent. Once they started to fire, they cannot stop themselves, and they're somewhere. But this image returned, so you're sitting in Vispi, um, and you have this very, as you described, very tangible feeling of the events in Kiev. But how did Chechnya come back to you at this moment, now as a grown-up person? and these memories, and how did this feeling that something decisive regarding the future of your country, of Ukraine, of Chechnya, was decided there, in this moment? I do feel, or I do believe, that in 1994, by Yeltsin, or by the government or by us, all of us. The very decisive step was made. Consciously or subconsciously, knowingly, not knowingly, the future was drafted there. Because it was the very simple choice between words and bullets, negotiations and shells. And it's very important to recall how the Russian government officials in the moment uh, of autumn 1994 described the rebellious Republic of Chechnya. They described it as something which is not, um, is not real. These Chechens, we will crush them with the one uh, parachute regiment, as the Minister of Defense said. It was this moment when the feeling of Russia as something you should reckon with just emerged, it re-emerged back. While in reality, it was, as we all remember, extremely painful lesson for Russians. Chechens fought back with such a force that they proved themselves to be subjects of their own history, fate, and, uh, and all the things. And at this was the very moment when Russia turned itself into imperial paths, on the path of uh, keeping 
the integrity of this country, which is really uh, a blanket made of very different nations, tribes, territories, to keep it with sheer force. And this was the thing you cannot take back. This starts this logic of application of force, and quite soon this force was crossing the uh, uh, internationally recognized borders of the Russian Federation. It stepped first into Georgia and then into, into Ukraine. Your books, including, I mean, there are three books in Swedish, uh, and the people of August that we heard this excerpt from is one of two books that start with traces of I mean, one of many of your books that start with traces of previous generations. Uh, it's, it's like an investigation where a clue is found and then the mapping of the traces that emerge, that are digged out, uh, creates a kind of map. But the map is always faulty, full of gaps, full of question marks. And when when in your writing did this, because they are in a way like detective stories. I know that uh, Debutante, which is the, the espionage thriller in, in your writing, uh, is the one that's usually labeled as a thriller, but they're all thrillers in a way. They're all detective novels in a way, because they're all about clues and puzzling. And if we go back into your own biography, when did this feeling of a puzzle that needs to be solved, when does it emerge? When in your life do you feel that the past is something highly unknown, full of traces and riddles, which are not really told and w w which are covered in the silence that is always the starting point of this detective story. Uh, you may believe or not, but this can be traced back to the real years of childhood of the Soviet, to the Soviet period. I spent, <laughs> I spent 10 years in the Soviet Union and it was quite an experience because on one hand, I was a normal, Soviet kid raised within the bubble of the Soviet culture, which, ma which meant no family history before the 1917, like we were all born somehow in this very moment. And uh, quite interestingly, in the family albums, my great-grandfather great uh, appeared already in his Red Army uniform. Since seven, uh, what, what he did before? and what sort of uniform he was wearing was somehow, this question was ever, never raised. Uh, uh, second, uh, this life meant that you have no personal historical connections with the, any sort of a country outside of the Soviet Union. How can you? Because you belong exactly to this, say, egg. And this was quite a, a, a relieving and good feeling of being very solid. I mean, you, you, you have no inner discrepancies, but maybe, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, it's a little bit of Proustian thing. I was extremely allergic as a kid. Maybe it's really a trace of hypersensitivity. So therefore, in a certain moments of time, I felt that the elders, I mean, all of them, really all of them, are in a sort of conspiracy. I mean, they are hiding something. And um, we had the normal family story, but it was also a habit of excluding some figures of this story. Some people were really represented just on the, by the small photos on the wall, and when you went right to went further, and okay, but this particular step, 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 somebody, who was he? Let us go and play. And second, and maybe more important thing, is that my parents were geologists, 
all the entourage were geologists. They uh, went into these expeditions in the early 30s, which means exactly the moment when gulag camps were closed. Uh, <clears throat> I, I didn't knew this, but for example, my mother, as a, she was 25, Maladoy Sovietsky specialist, the young Soviet specialist, she was in command of the geological party of 40 people, and they were all ex-prisoners which means that they've seen a lot, really a lot. Uh, this was never public, but in some moment during their gatherings, when enough was uh, consumed, the stage of thinking, singing songs was already uh, abandoned, they were sometimes telling them, let us talk about our... Uh, it's not interesting what we will talk about. And then, overhearing their talks in the other room, you understood that there, on the north and east, there is something, what they knew, what they know, what is extremely dark, dangerous and interesting, and there is a certain gravitation coming from there. And I actually was going through the family atlases, trying to uh, figure out what is this, what is there. It was a little bit like a you know Chernobyl zone somewhere there, uh, and I never got an answer. But it also raised these suspicions about the trustworthiness of the elders. Are they for real, or there is a some once upon a time it will be some crack in the reality, and you will get inside the other world, the real world. And actually this, I think, trained much my <laughs> detective instincts. But then you became a geologist yourself, also uh, accustomed to looking at layers of things. And we've been traveling and walking. I had the privilege when I moved to Moscow to go on long walks with you. And I know your attitude to topography, and you say radioactivity, let's, let's call things radioactivity so we don't have to go into the realm of um, uh, the supernatural, um, but we could call it radioactivity, we could call it ghosts or hunted places. You have a nose or an interest or a sensitivity for this wherever we go. And we've been to really haunted places, execution grounds, uh, uh, burial places outside of gulag camps in the far north of, of Russia. Wherever you are, you get in touch with this. It's a very curious experience for us who are with you because you really get in touch with the radioactivity of the place. And instead of horrifying you, it kind of draws out something inside. I mean, this is how I imagine also your writing process because it leads to something which I have been privileged to experience in our talks. But it's like this radioactivity, these ghosts are not frightening you. They are, they are these traces. This is this window that you just described, this, this light of history, of truth, final, finally some answers coming out. Would you describe it this way? Or how would you describe your own attitude to this radioactivity. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, radioact I, I hope we all understand in, what I'm In speaking. quotation marks. Uh, yes. Okay, uh, I, I told uh, about this very solid and uh, quite, a, let's say, homogeneous personality, which I was entitled by my by the fact that I was born in the Soviet Union, which I was very happy to live with for like 12, 13, 14 years. But then this personality was, was just crashed into, not in two, not in three, but really into splinters in historical dimension or metaphysical dimension. Because all of a sudden, it was not just one skeleton in the family's uh, uh, history, but really a crowd of them. And through me, as the last descendant of this 
enormous family which existed in the beginning of the century, were going the lines, like I mean, real electricity lines, of different people, different uh, sub sub parts of the family, who were all executed, arrested or deported for different reasons. For their nationality, for their class origin, for being priests, for being this and being that. And, and it really, I mean, crashes you because you are the last person standing. It's all in you. All these lines are in you somehow. And all of them are alien because you never, ever, ever, when you were born or raised, supposed to bear any of this heritage of or lineage. And the way of uh, tracing this, literally tracing this in natural and supernatural archival or metaphysical way, is the only <laughs> objective way for me to, to combine my personality together, but quite frequently I feel that, I mean, it's maybe it's, it's not a personality and I'm a more collective medium for the huge, huge crowd of people who are standing behind, who all have their lives cut in an absolutely unnatural way, who are the real hostages of the history because the state, I mean, the Soviet state and later the Russian state, made a very special effort to erase them from history. It's not the natural process, but it's very artificial process of censorship. And I'm the only person who can do something for them about this uh, and this, this ability to, to feel, this ability to trace into the, into the depths, so to read the places, uh, is something I'm given as a tool for this very task. I, was, I wasn't chosen, it's, it's not a very big deal here, but uh, when I said yes, first time to some of the, I don't know, the, my first phase of research, I said yes to the huge, huge biography of fate that was not visible for me, I, as this crowd was not visible for me as a kid. Maybe you weren't the chosen one, but you chose literature because, I mean, all your novels, maybe except uh, Debutante, uh, are one of these lineages. It's, it's research into one of these lineages that go back from you into your, the biography of your, your family. And you chose the novel as a format, which, which wasn't, I mean, was it evident? Was it always understood to be written? It, when, when, I, uh, when I was about to... Okay, I was not about to begin my novel. Something happened with me which forced me to write a novel. And, uh, and the obvious choice in this situation would have been to write a non-fiction book. But it was because you were a journalist. Because I was a journalist who all of a sudden found that in his family there were not only victims but the perpetrators as well. But to go and uh, find something about this particular perpetrator meant that you need to go to the archives of the state security and apply for his file, which is per se strictly classified and they will just make laugh at you on his behalf, on their own behalf, and it's no way to understand something about the colonel of the state security, who were Gulag chief uh, and who retired in 1954. There is no way to do this. I mean, you can go into the, some of the places you know where he lived, but the witnesses will be gone the papers are gone, there was literally no way to do something about this. And I felt that, I mean, he, he was really clever. First you commit your crimes, then you go into the shadows and pretend that you are just another Soviet pensioner with uncertain past. Your modern-day colleagues will take care about your deeds and papers, sealing them forever and making love of, of the researchers. And I mean, it's an absurd, but there is no way how to act. 
And then I understood, okay, he was very clever, but there is one way he never thought of, of somebody being talented enough to write prose. Because the prose can penetrate all the curtains, all the doors he so cleverly uh, constructed on my way to. And this was my decision that I will go specifically for the novel writing, for the prose writing, and I will bring him back to existence, back of the shadows, with the prose, because otherwise you cannot do it. And this is for those of you who haven't read it, it's uh, Sergei's debut that in Swedish is called Viglamskans Rand, Oblivion in English. Uh, it is very much the story of what you described, a boy who grows up in a safe and secure Soviet childhood, very much set in a Dutch environment in the beginning of the book, and then history kind of lands in his lap with a lot of traces, ominous traces, but without so many answers. And I always felt that this is how your generation has actually been left with the past, with a lot of traces of horror, actually, and very few direct answers and very few people to ask direct questions to. But you mentioned something very important here, the lineage containing both, both victims and perpetrators. And we've had this conversation for a decade now, you and me, about, and you've, you've shown me when we are in the execution grounds of the NKVD, outside of Moscow or outside of Siktivkar, other places where we've been. And usually the way of commemorating the victims today in contemporary Russia by the church, by memorial, by many other actors, is that we're leaving the past where it is because it's, it's complicated. It contains perpetrators and victims. So let's not go into detail. Let's just mourn the tragedy without actually identifying the difference or the roles. Yet I feel that very much of your if I may say, mission as a writer has been to make this distinction. And so my question to you is, at what moment did you feel that there is a distinction, clear distinction? Because the pre predominant atmosphere that I've also experienced in, in Russia today is that you, you may not, it's even immoral, it's anti-intellectual, to make this distinction. Because we all know that some victims were in other circumstances the perpetrators of others, and history was complicated. And yet, you introduced this ethical component, that the ethos that is wildly missing in the Russian context today. So where did you find the relevance of ethos? In an, in an environment that denies the clarity of, of ethical questions? I think I can offer different answers. I will stay with one. It came from my geological experience. Because as a geologist for eight years, I was working in a north of Russia, Western Siberia and Kazakhstan two, eight field seasons, as we call it, exactly in the places where in the 40s, 30s, and 50s, the gulag camps were located. So I've seen the remnants of them staying there, abandoned, not commemorated in any way, just in the wilderness. And I felt that it's... Uh, quite a tricky thing, because uh, if you do not know what exactly these ruins are, you cannot read them. It's just some ruins. And the feeling of horrors, or the feeling of what was done with the people here, is absolutely vanished. The nature is taking over, and it's, it's a process going. It's what could be or should be stopped 
by some uh, artistic means, by delivery of this exact experience, not experience of the camps, but experience of camps being uh, swollen by the natural forces of oblivion. And most importantly, it was very exact feeling that enormous, okay, I will take the religious term, sin is in place. Because, I mean, every summer you go in a different places somewhere. And you know that in these places, those who died there, those who were executed there, they lie there somewhere in the ground. Uh, you cannot say that they were buried. They were not. They were thrown into the pits. Uh, and this is something which, I mean, that human's history starts with the moment when we uh, bury our dead ones. This is the moment where we are born in the human beings. And this enormous quantity of our relatives, our uh, uh, predecessors who are there, who are never commemorated in this way, who are just somewhere in the north, it's a burden. It's a burden on the heart and soul of this country. And also, it's not just the crime missing or these dead bodies missing. You, and every year you are there, you ask who did this? You can prescribe that into the nature, into historical catastrophe, but with every experience, because some, sometimes, I mean, I'm sorry to say, you really face them, face them mm -hmm. when there some natural processes opened. Who did this? I mean, and you look, you look into the books, you look into the, and this is this is the like. Uh, I mean, it's it's it will be truthful to say that they ask you to stand for them. Yeah. But it, it's it's what you feel when you literally day by day repeating somebody's doors because we worked in the we worked in the same mines. We followed the same uh, roads and paths in Tundra and Taiga. You are walking in their footsteps. Walking in the footstep day by day, summer by summer. There is no mystery here, but it is. You alienate yourself from this you know, livable places and somehow attach yourself to this Russia of dead ones. And you start feeling very hard about those who actually were in charge. Because you feel in a historical and cultural way the absence of this figure, of the figure of the evildoer. But then, Sergei, you must have been confronted with, with, um, with the argument that it's impossible to distinguish. That you know, the archives are not reliable of the state security, that we cannot know, that, that sometimes it's not so clear and not so easy. Uh, okay, sometimes it is. But the very tricky thing is that if we go back to the late 80s, to the moment when the topic, I mean the topic of the rehabilitation, the topic of the victims of the Stalinist terror were brought into the broad daylight to the public attention, it was the exact Soviet state who did this first. And the Soviet state did it with a purpose to clarify the public atmosphere, to distance themselves from the Stalinist past, and actually to hijack this agenda from the civil society to act first. Uh, as we can now... You've, you've read the documents? Yes, I read, I read the documents in the declassified archives in Vilnius and Kiev, I mean, the state security documents, uh, proving that there were really red lines in place, 
red lines established by state security, which meant that if you would like to build a monument commemorating the victims, the officers of state security will come and help you, literally, I mean, with the shovels. So the KGB was building? Yes, the, the KGB was much in it. But if during the public gathering dedicated to this, you will ask, and what about the uh, prosecutors who did this? The inner KGB instruction was to shut all the such conversation down. This was exact red line. Victims, yes. Perpetrators, no. No way. And actually, when you feel that the civil society as such followed these red lines, had bought this as a sort of you know, compromise what is possible, what is not, it makes you really angry. And as we know as well from this sociological data. Uh, the polls were made in the early 90s. And actually, this poll shows that more than one half of the population, in one way or another, supported the idea of the legal procedures against those who committed crimes in 60s, 70s, and 80s. Because so there was a chance to still There persecute. was a demand. I mean, there was a demand in place. There was a public conscience ready in this very narrow window of opportunities. But unfortunately, the very leaders of the public opinion who've been entitled to be the protagonists of these changes, they all gathered an idea that it will be a witch hunt. We should abandon the legal procedures for the sake of humanity, as Memorial formulated it. Uh, and I'm very much sure that this very moment gave the state security way to penetrate and to survive and to go into the Russia's future. This prolonged the circle of impunity into the modern Russia and it backfired immediately. This impunity um, we will come back to. Uh, we are sitting here we should backtrace a year. Uh, many of my Russian friends on the days following the 24th of February last year were shocked, were surprised, expressed disbelief, shock, um, alienation. Uh, for a person who wrote the lines that we heard Ida reading uh, earlier from your novel, 10 years ago, I know this was not a shock for you, but it must have been an enormous moment of grief to have had the kind of right uh, feeling about certain directions. How, where were you and how were you on the 24th of February last year? I was in my apartment in Potsdam, editing my, my texts later, late in the night. Of course, I had hope. It's, you always have hope that at least maybe somebody will be wise enough to avoid, to avoid the worst. But then, early in the morning, when the first footage came of Russian attack helicopters going to the hostel and it was a little bit uncertain for some people if it's full-scale war or it's a, it's a provocation because everybody was talking about the provocations or, or the Nazi threat <laughs> when it all started with the, in 1939 with Poland. You know, my my only thought were with people whom I knew in Kiev, very exact and very exact persons. Where you had done a lot of research yes. in the archives. Yes, because uh, for these years, since 2014, uh, I was quite privileged. I was led in, into Kiev, I was led into the Ukrainian state security archives. Uh, as a, I was a citizen of the hostile country, led, I always was given a chance to get the documents to work there, 
to work with the f my family story because some of my relatives were executed by Bolsheviks in Crimea. At the same time, you, your wife did historical yeah. research, maybe. Yes, and I always felt my enormous gratitude for for the chivalry, for the chivalry of those who worked there, for them never speaking with me as a citizen of the enemy's country, for giving such enormous credit of personal trust that you are there, you are giving these precious materials and you will make the right use of them. I mean, it's... And I mean, it's, it's a SBU archives, which means that all, all the members are... Um, And in this very moment, I've thought about about these women and men who will now probably be drafted or maybe not drafted, who will try to save these precious, precious papers. And I felt, I mean, you always have some lens. We know that some of the precious papers from Kharkiv, for example, yeah. were were immediately uh, taken away yeah. by the Russian troops. Yes, and I felt that it's it's not just the war against Ukraine, Ukrainian nation, Ukrainian people. It's this sheer force and destruction and oblivion is coming to swallow and classify everything which is uh, truthful about the 20th century. I mean, it's, it's a bit of poetic way here, but when you are really working with the... When in, in the same archives, I found the last signatures or last uh, existing uh, papers signed by my step-step-grandfathers, who were not knowing actually that they are signing their own death, death penalties, because they were told by the Bolsheviks that they are they were signing just the questionnaires. But under, uh, after day of, after the uh, Troika, this uh, triangle of Bolshevik commissar and so on, they using the red and blue pencils uh, in a way of, in a fillon of colors, there were already enormous letters over this questioners and once and for all uh, to execute, to execute, to execute, to execute. And somehow I felt, given the fact that people in, in the Western Ukraine were forced sometimes to fill the same questioners, and people were, it's well known since 2014 that many people were just executed on the spot for being uh, not loyal or being not, not welcomed, including the priests. And I just felt that this is the same beast awakening. And unfortunately, I am the citizen of the country. I cannot stand physically for this. And this was the grimmest moment when... Uh, you know, Stefan, I never thought about uh, myself uh, being not trained for combat because uh, uh, unfortunately, the only chance for me to be trained for combat was the uh, participation in one of the Chechen wars waged for Russia, illegal criminal, and so there was no chance, but this was the moment when I felt a pity for me being not fit for I think at this moment this. we should bring out one of the custodians of this memory of this beast that was returning, Yuri Dmitriev. And uh, this is your essay published by Ariel, uh, Mikhail Nudols, and our series that we work with. Uh, it's an essay about a place in Karelia called Sandermoch. It's a big topic, but if we should briefly draw the line that links Sandemoch with what's going on in Ukraine right now. How would this line uh, sound? Okay, we start with the geography. You like me talking about geography. Sandemoch is a remote place in the northern region of Karelia, really far away from Ukraine. Really far away from Ukraine. 
uh, from its <laughs> sunny fields and uh, rivers. Yet, there is a group of Ukrainians, philosophers, artists, writers, uh, theater and cinema directors, uh, all in their 30s and 40s and 50s, all united by the time and age, who are buried there, who actually were executed there by the Soviets in 1937. In Ukrainian historiography, they go as the executed renaissance. This was the, in a Ukrainian, a Soviet Ukrainian, but yet national Ukrainian intellectual elite, first arrested in the early 30s, when the Stalin changed the national policy and the very word nationalism became a stigma and a label to be executed. First they were deported to Solovki, and then in 1937 they were uh, considered to be too dangerous to be kept even in a, in a closed facility of the camp because they're presumably uh, making some Ukrainian nationalist propaganda there and they were executed in this uh, killing ground where in total around eight to 9,000 people are buried. Uh, and this very place was found by, in the late 90s by uh, people from uh, St. Petersburg Memorial and by Karolian historian Yuri Dmitriev, who transformed this place into the very specific type of place of memory. Because usually it goes, yes, one symbol, one list of uh, names, and that's it. He urged, actually, the local diasporas and Karelian diasporas to first to build the monuments for their own kind, let's say. There are 60 nationalities buried in Sandarmok, so all in the years, years to come, uh, the Thunderbolt was transformed into the forest of memory, as I put it, with very different type of monuments, without any monopoly, without any uh, group being uh, overrepresented and other underrepresented, without any single list which somehow equals everybody, because some people in Sandarmok, of course, were hardcore Bolsheviks, and some were not. This type of different plaques put on the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the trees gives you the chance to fill every person in, within his own fate without any mm -hmm. uh, premature uh, early connections uh, between them. Uh, so Dmitriev was the custodian and the keeper of this place and of course one of the monuments there was the monuments exactly for executed Ukrainians, Ubiyennem Senam Ukraini. It's the Cossack's uh, cross made of limestone, quite an oppressive thing. And this exact cross is one of the very few, and maybe the single one, uh, real physical monuments dedicated to the colonial crimes of Russia against Ukraine. In, and in Russia? In Russia, of in Russia. In Russia. Because the very location where these executed Ukrainians are buried is an evidence itself. They are not in Ukraine, they are very far from any sort of Ukrainian borders. And in 2014, when Russia next Crimea and went in with the military force into the eastern regions, of course this place became, in the, from the perspective of the Russian authorities, extremely mm, dangerous, because it provided an insight, it provided the evidence of the, the same pattern of evil happening once again and again and again. And they tried to shut it down, and they tried to shut it down exactly in the uh, special operation manner, uh, given uh, that the Dmitry was the guardian angel. They tried to compromise him and therefore to compromise the place as well. And now he's 
serving his 15 years term in, in Mardovia, another gulag area. <coughs> and uh, while he had been in prison in Petrozavodsk, uh, in one of his letters he wrote that he is in the same prison cell as several people whose fates he studied as a Gulag researcher and who were actually buried in Sandarmok. So there is a very, very tragic connection and very tragic repetition here. And we mention him because Yuri Dmitriev is not mentioned often enough, maybe, as a political prisoner in Russia today and as a political prisoner who is in prison exactly for standing up to the right of Ukrainians to commemorate their dead in Sandermoch. I am now asking questions to you as a Russian writer. This has been also the predominant trend since the war, full-scale war in Ukraine started. Western media, Western festivals have been searching for the, the good Russians, the oppositional Russians, who can answer questions. And there's been a lot of criticism regarding this coming from Ukraine, because of course, uh, Ukrainian voices have not always been as, as prominent. How do you feel about this position of being a, uh, a Russian that is, that is asked to explain something which is extremely painful, in a situation where there is such a discrepancy between the knowledge and interest directed towards Russia compared to the knowledge and interest uh, directed to a country uh, whose composers and writers uh, were either not allowed to be Ukrainian and write in Ukrainian or were shot in Sandermoch? I feel that my mission is actually explain exactly this that there are certain very strict things or rules here. You, sh any, you cannot and should not uh, claim the victimhood, because the victimhood is solely Ukrainian. And you should not take to talk or explain too much about the Russian culture and the current circumstances. Russian culture being this or that. The only very important angle is in place now of how the Russian culture was an instrument and tool, consciously or not, of oppression. It's time to talk about this. And exactly these topics or other topics, exactly uh, this is the right moment to start discussing this. And not to claim the innocence not to claim the uh, separation of culture from the politics. Vice versa, it's time to accept the responsibility and guilt. And uh, the very, we are talking about this, this people executed many, many years ago. Then they didn't just disappear. They were somehow replaced their writings were thrown out of the libraries and they were replaced by the books written in Russian. Uh, their possible futures were stolen from them and quite frequently replaced by the state-promoted uh, Russian writers. And there is, there is a thing here mm -hmm. to talk about. There is a... I would like you to give an example because you on Monday, during a talk at my workplace, you mentioned a document you found in the state security archives in Vilnius. Uh, a very, for me, a very, very clear clarifier of the, how this actually worked. Would you tell yes, us a bit about yeah. this document? It was an operative file dated 1949. So it's Lithuania. It's the occupied and Sovietized Lithuania, where the Lithuanian academics are entitled with the task to produce the textbooks for literature for the Lithuanian schools in Lithuanian, uh, sixth and seventh grade, if I remember well. 
Uh, so they do the task. Uh, six or seven of them, they are Soviet, Soviet, uh, Soviet employees, uh, and they are not uh, nationalists or whatever, so they were screened already by the state security for this task. But yet, somewhere from this institution, it's the Academy of Pedagogy of Lithuanian USSR, comes the signal to the state security that something wrong is goes here. And then we have a report written by the officer who were uh, looking through the case. The report states that these, these people, uh, and this report actually was the base for the charges against, against them. them later. And they were sentenced to the real prison terms of seven to eight years. So what states the report? That they highly uh, misunderstood their task and they uh, not represented enough in this textbook the classics of the Russian literature, namely Tolstoy, Pushkin and Chekhov, uh, over-representing instead the Lithuanian authors. And this is highly criminal ideological subversion preventing the Lithuanian school children from being united with the big family of the nation of the Soviet Union. And when you read these uh, well-known names in this context, you really can feel and understand that somebody can see Pushkin, Tolstoy, Chekhov from the very different position you used to look on them, because they were a real vehicle and real tool of oppression, and they really get at least one of the. What was the ratio between Lithuania? Yes, and this, is, this is this is this this the most important thing here because they already did their best and they gave Russians seventy five percent of the textbook and twenty five to uh, Lithuanians and. For this, they were sent to camps. And for this, they were accused of ideological subversion, uh, uh, put under the trial, and sent into camps, yes. There is a very curious thing going on. Yes, and on. Just, yep. just, to, just to finish this, and uh, uh, I mean, uh, these are the real papers, which mm -hmm. means they contain some uh, notes made by the security officers, and the last names of Pushkin and Tolstoy were just underlined by the red pencil in the, in the paper. Look what they did to, to our classics. A very curious thing is going on in occupied Ukraine, in the parts that are occupied by Russian uh, forces. They put back Lenin's. In every town they conquer, they raise the statue of Lenin with the blessing of the patriarch Kirill. They also erect busts of Pushkin. They rename streets. Back. Back to Lenin Street, Lermontov Street, Pushkin Streets. The Pushkin Streets seem to be ex extremely important in this context, together with the statues of Lenin. How do you explain this? I mean, it has nothing to do with the Lenin, of course. The Lenin is, is, is the, um, I mean, we even can, we, let's say, this monument. This monument is the uh, sort of the label of belonging. In every, this is how you mark your territory. In every so former Soviet uh, uh, town, city or village, you should have this statue of Lenin. You remove and yeah, there is something goes out, out of the control. It doesn't, it's not the same, it's not the same space anymore. And uh, of course, uh, it's interesting that, that it's called Leninopad. The mass removal of Lenin's in Ukraine. In Western Ukraine, it started already in the late 80s, early early 90s, and we have. Uh, Had uh, is falling. Yeah, so Leninopad. Yeah, Lenin of fall, and we have uh, cases in the 
in, in the archives uh, telling how the KGB officers were reinstalling, putting down, reinstalling, putting down. So this is the symbol of ownership, common for the whole post-Soviet space. And the very moment when the uh, Ukrainian state uh, passed the law of decommunization many, many years ago, the Russian state, which never paid any attention to Lenin now, went on alert. What you, are, what you are doing, this is our common cultural heritage. It was extremely strange in the moment because uh, Putin uh, in the same time was saying that Lenin actually betrayed the Russian, uh, the Russian state and created Ukraine. Created Ukraine, and only Comrade Stalin was wise enough to uh, repair what <laughs> what Lenin did. Uh, but in the same time, it was this very suspicious care of these small Lenins everywhere, which means you are labeled. You are owned by this, as you are owned by the fact you have this self-repeating Pushkins everywhere. This is the science of the cultural dominance. And the very fact that Russian state is so sensitive about this means that mentally on the map, this territory is still ours. And you are not, you don't have the, you know, cultural sovereignty over this. You may be claim that you are an independent state, but cultural sovereignty is something this, as something other, and we still own you. We still own you through the language, and we still own you through the, you know, embassies of these prominent figures who were traveling here or writing its poems here, or just has nothing to do with this place in much cases. I mean, uh, please remember the history of, uh, of Estonia, the history which took place in Tallinn, where Estonian government tried to move the bronze soldier, not to erase, but just to move it a little bit from the, from the center to the how, how, what a, what a hype it provoked on the Russian side, because really we own, we as Russia own certain, uh, certain places, and we act through this. Uh, it's like a backdoor. Uh, I do remember. I mean, <laughs> here is a quite a, quite a interesting, uh, uh, relevant thing in place in in, in Norway. Uh, in, a, in a late 40s, I think, uh, where a lot of Soviet prisoners of war were in the concentration camps. First, the Soviets erected some small monuments there, and then they used the visits of the officers to these monuments as a pretext for the reconnaissance missions. So it's a very clear thing. It's the uh, right to go and to, to do your job. We have a couple of minutes left, and... Uh an enormous question uh, luring upon us, hovering, hovering over us. What could be an exit point for a Russian, for you, at this moment? Where can an individual, because there seems to be an apathy not only in Russia, but also in exile. What can we do? What can you do? So my last enormous question, and I give you two minutes to answer, <laughs> is what can you do? Uh, we can stop crying. We can stop pretending with that we are suffering enormously and we lost a lot. We can stop comparing ourselves with the previous waves of immigration and therefore uh, trying to somehow justify what has happened. This is like a historical logic behind this. Um, the main trouble and the main problem of the Russian culture is that it's extremely self-centered. We. Uh, it's it's such such a such a significance or such a value is prescribed to it that I would say that we lost the metaphysical or uh, transcendental ability to look on us through the eyes of others, and the only thing, the only real, sharp, painful, historical task we have now, to try to look upon themselves, upon us 
through the eyes of Ukrainians. People will say that they will try, that when, when you really try to do this, I would say that 90% of what was told, written, made throughout this year, it's not going from this direction or this position. We really should try to learn and see how we look in the eyes of the victim. And if we will be able to do this, it will be enormous relief and a seed for the future. If we will be not be able to do this, it's not a culture anymore. It's, it's something ancient, it's something which will develop and leave, but the very, you know, the moment of significance comes when the culture is really able to produce criteria which is now important and what is not. What is the main uh, tragedy and what is not the tragedy maybe at all. And the very uh, inability of general, let's say, um, cultural, say, cultural crowd to distinct between the real suffering, the real victimhood, and our problems that are serious but they are not victimhood is enormous. And this is the lesson for us, I think, to learn from the situation. Thank you for this very honest conversation, Sergei. Before you applaud, we've agreed that we will end by giving the space to a Ukrainian writer, Serhii Shadan, one of the icons of contemporary Ukrainian literature, uh, musician, poet, uh, one of the great voices of Ukraine, from Kharkiv, uh, Ukrainian speaking. This is his uh, masterpiece in Swedish called Internatet, uh, uh, about uh, the fate of a man who tries to rescue a teenager, young relative, uh, through the front line in occupied Donbass, uh, the previous phase of the war, but very much describing exactly what happened in Mariupol, in Irpin, other places. So, uh, we end this conversation by urging you to read the book by Serhii Shadan. Read it because it's just out in Swedish. And uh, listen to the voice of Ukraine. Thank you very much, Sergei.